The Bob Murphy Show, episode 286. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, we are completing our analysis of the debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens, on the question of, does God exist? So this debate is very popular in modern circles, touted by both Christians and atheists alike. And incidentally, you might say, well, is it touted by Jews or Muslims? Because they believe in God too. And William Lane Craig being Christian, this really turned into a debate about, is the Christian worldview right or not? And that's going to be one of my criticisms of Hitchens here in a second. But in any event, in case you missed it, so back on episode 282, so bobmurphyshow.com slash 282, I went through the opening statement of William Lane Craig, a philosopher who is an apologist for Christianity, and now I'm doing the flip side and going through Christopher Hitchens' opening statement, and then that's where I'll end it. I've given you enough that you can choose whether to dive in and see their back and forth in the Cross-examination, that's the term. Let me mention, some people misunderstood, and it was partly my fault, I didn't communicate it well. In my previous episode on this topic, right, so there's been a couple of intermediary episodes, and people were getting worried I wasn't going to come back to this. Back in 282, when I went through William Lynn Craig, I was pretty critical of him. I didn't even realize it was going to turn out like that. I just went through, and for every one of his points, I gave my commentary And when all is said and done, of the four or five main points from him that I analyzed, I think I said all but one of them wasn't very good. And then even the one I agreed with, I thought he kind of fumbled the exposition, (laughs) right? So I could see why people walked away thinking, oh, Bob thought William Lane Craig lost the debate or something. And no. So to be clear, I think William Lane Craig destroyed Hitchens in this debate, but it's mostly because Hitchens didn't even show up, right? He was not responding, certainly his opening statement. In the cross-examination, they had a little bit more clash, but again, even there, it wasn't great. And that's why what I meant in the beginning, you know, in the previous episode, when I introduced this topic, I said something like, I felt bad for the students because from what the moderator said, when the guy first got up on stage to tell everyone, okay, thanks, I know you've been waiting for two hours and we're about to get going here, that I would have been pretty disappointed if I sat there and, you know, camped out and got my good seat and waited two hours for the thing to even get going. And that's what I saw because, you know, I was underwhelmed watching it on YouTube. So I can imagine if you were excited to see it in person. So yeah, I'm going to go through here in a second here and give you the specifics. But overall conclusion is Hitchens, he was not responding specifically to what William Lane Craig said. And now in fairness, you could say, well, they kind of had to have their prepared remarks. But no, on the other hand, that's not what you do in a debate. 
when you go to a debate and you know you're going to go second in the opening statement, you got to leave yourself time to tailor your remarks to what the other guy specifically says. And also, when I watched, you know, I did watch the whole thing. I don't think Hitchens ever really came back and point by point even tried to rebut William Lane Craig's specifics. And even the few times that he did, he didn't really answer it well. So specifically, they don't get to this, I don't believe in these opening remarks, but later in the debate, Hitchens will try to address the morality point that William Lane Craig brought up, and he transforms the argument. He says, where's the effect of, well, you know, it's not that Christians are any better behaved than atheists are, so that's silly. It's not that you need your belief in a sky daddy who's going to punish you to keep you in line because obviously that doesn't work. So then William Lake Craig had to, you know, when he had a chance to speak again, had to clarify and say, no, that's not the argument. The argument is not, hey, Christianity is probably true or God probably exists because otherwise we wouldn't be kept in line. And so good thing he exists and that we're all, or most of us believe in him because the threat of him taking us out to the woodsheds, making us not go around pillaging and looting and so forth. That's not what the argument is. The argument as William Lane Craig presented it was to say, if there's no God, then there's no objective morality. Everything is just mere preference. All right, just like to say is vanilla ice cream better than chocolate ice cream. People can have their preferences, but it's not like, no, 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 vanilla really is better. Like that doesn't even make sense. And so likewise, if there's no God, William Lane Craig was arguing that it doesn't make sense to say murder or rape really is wrong. It's just to say, you know, maybe if we're all engaging that behavior, it won't be conducive to my goals, but that doesn't mean they're immoral, like that there's some qualitatively different aspect to those behaviors than if I just said, hey, if we're trying to score in a basketball game, maybe we should pass the ball three times before we take a shot. And if somebody dribbles down and takes a three without passing, it's not that he did something immoral. It's just you could say, well, that's not really conducive to what we're trying to do as a team here. Yes, I am making a subtle Hoosiers reference. All right, so that's what the argument was, and Hitchens just missed that by thinking or taking the claim to mean Christians are better behaved people. And also, too, to just say, well, yes, the atheists are not going around killing people, so therefore you don't need a God, belief in a God to do that. Even that's not a great defense because the Christian point is, right, you guys are internalizing, you have a conscience because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, right? Like that's how deep down you know it's wrong because you're a child of God made in his image. So that's why, come on, we all kind of know you shouldn't murder people. That's really wrong. And not just like, hey, if I want to stay out of the sun, going under a tree is a good idea. It's good to go under the tree. That That's different from saying it's good to not punch a baby in the face, right? It's not merely saying, oh, if my goal is to not hear crying, then I shouldn't punch a baby in the face. No, it doesn't matter what your goals are. You shouldn't punch a baby in the face, right? So in fairness, the claim, it's a bit hard. Like, I don't even know what I would do as an atheist to deal with that. I'm not saying that means it must be right. I'm just saying it is a pretty fundamental claim and you got to step back and ponder it for a moment. <laughs> if you're on the other side of that. But I'm saying just to point out, oh, Christians cheat on their wives or something like that. It's like, yeah, because they're hypocrites and 
a good Christian, I'll quote good Christian, would admit, right, every time I sin, I'm a hypocrite and whatever, and that's because it's my sin nature, and I know it's wrong, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Okay. So anyway, there, I just kind of dwelt on that a little bit because I don't think that actually comes up in these opening, well, William Lake Craig brought it up in, in his opening statement. Hitchens, I don't believe, addresses that here. Or maybe he does, and I just forgot, and I don't know. I have to just, if I get to it, my notes here, as we go through these points, maybe then I'll just say, oh, wait, he did talk about it. Okay, so let's go ahead and go through, I'll address many points that Hitchens makes, play a quick excerpt, and then offer my commentary on it. So the first clip we have, well, let me just say before I dive into this, Hitchens is, he's a charming guy, right? He's funny, so it's pleasurable to just listen to him, even though he's saying some pretty harsh things the crowd is glad to be there and hear him. Okay, so actually, even though I kept saying, both in the previous episode and this one, I repeated it that, oh, I would have been let down, I would have been disappointed. I'm sure the students who were there, this thing's got 6.9 million views on it, it's eight years old up on YouTube. I am sure the students who were there were glad they were there. Like they might say to their grandkids or something, ah, oh, yes, the classic debate between Liam Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. I was there and saw it live. All right, maybe it'll be their Woodstock. So he's a charming guy, funny, you know, acerbic wit and so forth. So I, he's did a good job building up this public persona. I'll give him that. All right, he's a funny character. But having said that, I don't think he did a very good job in this debate. They get it. You know, I, I think he just had his talking points and just showed up and kind of just gave his stump speech. Okay, but here we go. So here is... Hitchens starting off. Well, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades, friends, thanks for coming out, as uh, Senator Larry Craig actually did say at his uh, press conference. <laughs> um, thank you, Mr. Hewitt and uh, Dr. Craig, for being among the very many, very, very many Christians who have so generously and hospitably and warmly taken me up on the challenge I, I issued when I started my little book tour, and welcomed me to your places to have this most important of all discussions. I can't express my gratitude enough. So even right there, I just wanted to comment on that, even though it might have seemed like he was just doing some throat clear and getting warmed up. That is critical, right? To be a faithful Christian, to follow on the commands of Jesus, send you out as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. You got to be the salt and the light. They'll know you're my disciples by your love, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. It should be the case when there's exchanges between professing Christians and atheists that the professing Christian is extremely patient and tolerant and loving. And if one person in that exchange is going to be rude and sarcastic and belittle the other, it needs to be the atheist doing that, right? That's the right thing to do as a Christian. And also, it's effective rhetorically, right? It's like in the civil rights struggle. I told you that there was tactics that they taught, you know, like to, they were going to go have a sit-in at a segregated lunch counter or something. And they knew that, oh, the crowd might start beating us up, punching, spitting. And so what we'll do is we'll form a ring around people in the interior from our team. They're, you know, doing the sit-in to kind of give them a break. And then when the people in the outer ring can't take it anymore, they're getting punched and spit at and sworn at and stuff, then they'll rotate. And 
the tactics were things like try to engage the person in conversation. You know, they're punching you, spitting you, calling you racial epithets and stuff or the racial term lover. Like if you're a white guy who's there, don't start insulting them back. Don't call them racist. Don't call them bigot or whatever. Instead, you just, why are you punching me? Or, hey, I see your son is here with you. That's great. You have a family or whatever. I don't know exactly what, what talking points they gave him to say. But to me, to activate their normal machinery of interacting with other human beings. Like it'd be hard to sit there and keep punching and swearing and spitting at somebody who's just trying to talk to you like a normal guy. All right. So again, likewise, I'm saying I was glad to hear Hitchens remark that, yes, I'm going around telling them they're all a bunch of fools and they've been nothing but nice to me. Right. And I'm saying that's not the Christians being suckers. That's them doing what Jesus told them to do. All right. So good job, guys. All right. Let us proceed to the next clip. What I have discovered in voyaging around this country and others in this debate and debating with Hindus, with Muslims, with Jews, with Christians of all stripes is that the arguments are all essentially the same for belief in the supernatural, for belief in faith, for belief in God. Okay, so Hitchens here, you know, you might be wondering, like, why am I pausing here? Like, he's not even, he's still getting warmed up here. He hasn't even said what his main first point is. But he just made a rhetorical move there that I thought was interesting and worth pointing out. He said, belief in the supernatural, for belief in faith, for belief in God, as if those were all kind of the same thing. And I understand why he would do that. And by the way, I'm not accusing him of being intellectually dishonest or him trying to like sneak something by us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's showing his mindset. And I understand it quite well because back when I was an atheist, I would have done the same thing. Is again, he's making all of those things interchangeable. And Christians are partly to blame for this. And you know, we'll get into this as I continue to parse these remarks. But strictly speaking, if what you mean by belief in faith is belief that, hey, you got to just, you know, believe certain propositions, even though you don't have evidence for them. And the belief in the supernatural is saying, hey, you got to believe in certain things, even though reason and science wouldn't support such a belief, that sometimes you got to just suspend the weight that you place on reason and science and, you know, empiricism and just go with something that really defies those things because you have faith and that that's what you need to do in order to believe in God, well, then you're stacking the deck, right? If you're sort of saying that that's interchangeable, that belief in the supernatural, belief in faith and belief in God are all kind of the same thing, well, then the debate's already over, right? That Hitchens can just say reason and science are good tools of discovery. And so if by definition almost... Believing in God means we have to set aside our best tools for discovering truth, then we have no good reason to believe in God. Thank you. I yield the balance of my time to the chairman. Okay, so I'm saying, again, he's, it's effective rhetorically, but I'm just pointing out that's the move he's making right there. And you'll see that coming through elsewhere in these opening remarks. Okay, so again, I'm not saying he's doing something that he thinks is slippery. He genuinely believes that. And that's why he doesn't believe in God, among other things. And by the way, just keep your ears open. I'll point it out when it happens. But later on, he's going to casually say how he doesn't believe in God for a priori reasons. That's not me putting words in his mouth. He literally will say that. 
a little bit later. So it's kind of funny that he's the champion of empiricism and rational inquiry, or whatever. And he's basically going to say a little bit into this thing that from the outset, a priori, he doesn't believe God exists. Like that just his worldview is inconsistent with such a being existing. So it's not surprising then when he goes and looks at the evidence, he doesn't find any evidence for God because he doesn't think God could possibly exist. Okay, so to be clear, he doesn't say literally, I don't think God could possibly exist. He's going to clarify what he means by atheism. But I'm saying, well, listen, and I'll point it out when he does it, but he does have this offhand remark later on when he's going to say, you know, the Christians believe in this sort of God and I reject that on a priori reasons. And it's, okay, so we'll get to that. But anyway, here, I just wanted to note that those three things aren't interchangeable. So specifically, like, let's say for me, let's make this concrete for you guys. So Hitchens, again, to refresh your memory, said, these things are all the same, whether it's Jews, Muslims, or Christians, the belief in the supernatural, the belief in faith, the belief in God, is if those are all kind of the same thing. But no, for me, those aren't interchangeable that, yes, I believe in God. Now, I believe in faith in the sense, right? So I do have faith in God. I've put my faith in Jesus. That does not mean it's opposed to reason. It's comparable just to saying you and your band of troops are running out of bullets and you're fighting, holding off the enemy from trying to, you know, take your position. And the lieutenant left hours ago and the men are starting to get scared, saying he's not coming back. And you say, no, 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 I have faith in him. He wouldn't abandon us like this, even though the odds are against us even though he's in safety right now and he'd be risking his life to come back and bring us more ammunition, he gave me his word and I don't think he would do that to us. I have faith in him, okay? So to talk like that doesn't mean I think the lieutenant is going to teleport over or that he's going to show up with a perpetual motion machine or that he's going to show up and take five rounds of ammunition and say a prayer and then hand them out to, you know, have all the men sit down in groups of 50 and 100 and then hand out the ammunition and arm 5,000 men. No, to say I have faith that the lieutenant's going to show up, I just mean, I think I know his character. I think I can trust him. Okay, it doesn't mean I have suspended my belief in the laws of physics to talk like that. Okay, so likewise, if Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare mansions for you, it's good that I leave you. I have faith in what he said. Okay, now I get the context is different there. And you could say, yeah, but to have faith the lieutenant's going to return doesn't require you to disbelieve in the laws of physics. He could do it. It's physically possible where some of the stuff Jesus is supposed to have done. I get that, but that's not what I'm talking about right here. I'm just saying the use of the word faith to say things like I have faith in God or I have faith in Jesus if I'm a Christian. That terminology does not mean, so therefore when it comes to quote religious stuff or spiritual stuff, I throw science out the window. That's not what it means. Now, Belief in the supernatural, that's a tricky one. And again, let me just give you my nuanced take, but I don't think I'm just being idiosyncratic here. I think if we just calmly walk through this and think about it, what I'm saying has to be the only coherent position. And so here goes. Given that there's a material world, what do we mean when we talk about the, the laws of physics? What that has to mean, the only thing it can possibly mean is that well, there seems to be a pattern in how this material world operates and that the laws of physics are the rules that distill this pattern down. If you want, it helps us predict what's going to come in the future. 
I think that, you know, those kind of all tied together. You know, I guess you got to have a, that second thing is sort of smuggling in a notion of time. But on the other hand, I don't even know what it would mean to say there seems to be a pattern in the behavior of the physical world or the material world if you don't have a notion of time. But okay. All right. So to me, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, there's the laws of physics, but then God occasionally intervenes and causes a miracle to occur that violates the laws of physics. To me, that doesn't make any sense because if atoms behave in a way that seems to violate what the ostensible laws of physics are, then to me that just shows those weren't really the laws of physics after all. Right? It's not that Einstein, it's not that Newton had discovered the laws of physics and then Einstein pointed out cases of miracles. That's not how we talk. We just say, no, we revise what we believe the laws of physics to be in light of Einstein's theoretical work and then experimental observation. And so likewise, if we say it's against the laws of physics for a guy to walk on water and then Jesus starts walking across the lake, it's not to say, ah, he temporarily suspended it. No, I, I just don't think that makes sense. You say, no, what we thought the laws were is wrong. Now, I'm going to do another curveball. I'm okay with using the term miracle in a colloquial sense, right? Just like we talk about the miracle of birth. They still, I don't know if they had it for the most recent kid, but certainly my oldest, and I think for the second, you know, the video they show when you're getting ready for the kid to come, and one of them was the, the miracle of birth, right? So they're still showing that in the hospital, even though it's been secularized. Okay, so there's a sense in which, no, there's nothing miraculous about that. You've got the zygote, and it does this, and the cells keep multiplying, and blah, 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 and the DNA strands unravel, and blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it is a miracle, right? So what we mean by miracle is just an amazing set of conditions that yielded something. Usually it has a, you know, a wonderful connotation to it. Usually it means like something fantastic happened that you wouldn't have expected going into it. Something like that is what we mean. But we don't, again, with cases, you know, more everyday cases, there was the, that movie Miracle about the Americans beating the Russians in hockey. By the way, I, I always think, I wonder if Russians think that's hilarious that the Americans made a movie about the one time they beat him in hockey. Like, that's such an American thing to do, right? Instead of just being like, okay, yeah, we're good at basketball and winning wars and stuff, but let's give it to the Russians or the Soviets, I guess. They beat us. They're better at hockey. No, it's we make a movie about the one time we beat them. We're so awesome. USA. Okay, but again, was that really a miracle? Do they have to bring in chemists and look at the ice and say, wow, it must be that the melting point was changed in this game? No, that's not what we mean. Okay, so likewise, I'm saying, yep, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I am entirely open to the idea that Jesus walked on water. In case you're wondering why I'm saying that, meaning like my faith doesn't rest or fall on that. The only thing that's absolutely essential for my faith is that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, that, that's, that one I wouldn't be able to say, willing to say, hey, you know, maybe they just threw that in there and maybe really it was just, they remembered fondly his sermons after he was dead and stayed dead. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying some of the things that are in the Bible, my personal faith doesn't rest or fall on whether those particular claims of historical event are true. But on the other hand, I'm saying I have no problem 
if he did walk on water. And I don't think it would be because it violated even what we now think of as the conventional laws of physics. And you said, how is that possible? I don't know. There could be schools of fish that came up because just his personal charisma was so amazing. Maybe he like sent out electromagnetic signals and schools of fish came up to be near him and he was walking on them. I'm making stuff up, obviously, but I'm just saying, do you really know that what I just said is literally impossible? No, there's lots of stuff about the human body that we don't understand. Okay, and I grant you, if your kid came in and you know, <laughs> if you had like a cottage, you know, there's a lake and then there's a cottage on like a little island in the middle of the lake and you're there and your teenage son shows up and you said, what are you doing? I told you I didn't want you taking the rowboat over. And he says, oh, oh no, I, um, my personal charisma made the fish support me as I walked across the, you're allowed to call him a liar and ground him, right? <laughs> but I'm saying if it's in the gospel accounts, I'm more willing to be open-minded and say, I can believe that happens somehow. All right. So given that that's my view, when you say, oh, okay, so if you believe in God, does that mean you believe in the supernatural? I believe in the supernatural in the sense that he designed the natural order. And so he himself is above nature and is a supernatural being. But I don't mean that when God acts in human history, that I want to label those events as being opposed to the laws of nature. That actually, rather than limiting God's power, I would just say, no, my interpretation is no matter what happens, we're going to have to say the laws of physics allow for that. That's what it means to talk about the laws of physics. And if God is able to do all of these amazing things and to tell his story, history, with a very parsimonious set of rules governing behavior of the constituents of matter and the energy that, you know, flows around or whatever, that's even more astounding. It's more impressive if God can have all this stuff happen that gets chronicled in human history, you know, with the fall of man and then Jesus coming back and redeeming us and all that. And yet, if you just zoom in and analyze any little component of something, it just looks like there's these mindless molecules bouncing around, following very simple rules. And yet when you zoom out, you see the rise and fall of civilizations. Like that's absolutely breathtaking. That's awesome. It's sort of like the Mandelbrot set, right? It's a very simple rule to generate what membership in the set or not, and then how they assign colors to do that. If you ever have seen those, if you don't know what I'm talking about, check it out. Go to YouTube and do a Mandelbrot set zoom. And it's M-A-N-D-E-L-B-R-O-T. And just play around with some of those and you'll see. And it's just amazing. And that's, again, what they're doing there is they're zooming in on a structure that's generated from a pretty simple formula. It's fractals is what it is. Okay, and I'm saying that's analogous to what our universe is. And so if all this stuff happens and is consistent with a very parsimonious set of rules, to me, that just elevates the majesty of God. It doesn't, it's not like, I think a lot of conventional Christians, if they heard my perspective, would say like, oh, why are you limiting God? No, God doesn't have to, he can violate the rules of gravity or law of gravity if he wants to. Yeah, I know he could, but then it wouldn't be the law of gravity is what I'm saying. Okay, next clip. 
because I think it's rather sweet that people of faith also think they ought to have some evidence. And I think it's progress of a kind. After all, if we had been having this debate in the mid-19th century, Professor Craig or his equivalent would have known little or probably nothing about the laws of physics and biology, maybe even less than I know now, which is to say quite a lot in its way. And they would have grounded themselves, or he would have grounded himself, on faith, on scripture, on revelation, on the prospect of salvation, on the means of grace and the hope of glory, and perhaps on Paley's natural theology. Okay, so here... I don't know, unfortunately, the history well enough to say this with confidence, but I think he's being a little slippery here. That, for example, one of the theists from back in the day that might be willing to argue with Willie, or sorry, with Christopher Hitchens about the existence of God would be Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton believes in God. He actually, part of what his deal was, is he was searching scriptures for like numerical, he was like a numerologist. And he thought that there were patterns that the scriptures taught about and he was doing all kinds of, he was also into alchemy. Okay. So I don't think Isaac Newton arguing for the existence of God against somebody like a skeptic like Christopher Hitchens would be a dumb rube who didn't know anything about science. So this idea that the religious folk back in the day were just a bunch of ignorant rubes who were persecuting the real scientists and the real thinkers. And then now it's only in the 20 and 21st centuries where the church is finally catching up to the men of science. That's a self-serving myth that arose from, I think it was like a Renaissance idea where that stuff arose. Okay. So disclaimer or yeah, I'm not, endorsing all the actions of the Catholic Church, obviously, but I'm saying this ostensible war between science and religion, as told by modern atheists, at times is very misleading. Okay, now let's go to the next clip. The Paley analogy held for most Christians for many years because they were willing to make the assumption that we were mechanisms, and that therefore there must be a watchmaker. But now that it's been, here's where the presuppositionalist versus evidentialist dichotomy begins to kick in. Now it's been rather painstakingly and elaborately demonstrated to the satisfaction of most people, I don't want to just use arguments from authority, but it's not very much contested anymore, that we are not designed as creatures, but that we evolved by a rather laborious combination of random mutation and natural selection into the species that we are today. It is, of course, open to the faithful to say that all this was, now that they come to know it, now that it becomes available to everybody, now that they think about it, and now that they've stopped opposing it or trying to ban it, then they can say, ah, actually, on second thought, the evolution was all part of the design. Well, as you will recognize, ladies and gentlemen, there are some arguments I can't be expected to refute or rebut because there's no way around that argument. I mean, if everything, including evolution, which isn't a design, is nonetheless part of a divine design, then all the advantage goes to the person who's willing to believe that. That cannot be disproved. But it does seem to me a very poor, very weak argument because the test of a good argument is that it is falsifiable, not that it's unfalsifiable. Okay, so I think that is a good point he's making. All right, so it certainly 
shows that in practice, Christians have moved the goalposts largely when it comes to the debate over evolution. Now, some people like, what's the guy's name? Is it Ken Ham? I think is the like old school creationist guy. He might lament and say, yeah, they're idiots and they shouldn't have done that. And then, you know, they're giving away the game. But in general, I think it is entirely fair to say most Christians in the immediate wake of Darwin resisted that as complete hogwash. Whereas today, most Christians endorse the general claims of the theory of evolution. Like specifically, they don't have a huge problem with the theory of common descent. And that, yes, as Hitchens is saying, that the way they handle that is just say, well, God oversaw the whole process. Okay. Now, I in particular definitely adhere to the so-called intelligent design hypothesis. We don't need to get into that right now because for one thing, they don't get into it in this debate. But just to make sure, again, you understand the differences in those perspectives. So what the intelligent design community is arguing is that mere mutation operated upon by random selection, or sorry, by selection, can't explain what we see, the apparent design in biological organisms, or I should say biological structures. I guess organism means it's biological. Okay, so we don't need to get too much of that. But for example, Michael Behe, who's one of the giants in the ID camp, he's the one who like looked at the, at the cellular machinery and was just saying, you know, back in the day, they kind of thought cells were these little globs that weren't too sophisticated. But then as our microscopes got better, we realized, whoa, the cell itself, certainly, you know, in certain creatures, the cells are extremely complex. They're intricate machines that have dedicated parts all laid out in a very precise structure where if you were just missing one little part, the whole thing would break down. And so the idea that this could have emerged out of a process where each incremental step was just a random mutation and then because it conferred a slight advantage in reproductive fitness that then, you know, that little incremental change ended up predominating in the descendants and those things just kept accumulating over time until now we see people with their eyes and circulatory systems and endocrine and blah, 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 blah. That's just, no, that doesn't make, that story doesn't work in any way. If you actually tried to quantify and model it, you would need trillions of years of random mutations operated upon by natural selection. And there's just not enough time for that to work. Okay, so that's the kind of argument he's making. He's, so he's not though, as far as I know, he's perfectly willing to say that there was, that there is a theory of common descent. He's willing to endorse a theory of common descent to say all life forms on earth today, if you traced back their lineage, came from a single origin. It's just he's saying, like, how would that information have gotten into either the landscape or that cell or and or that original cell that that's that just can't be all oh, coincidence. Okay. Last thing I'll say on this, just in case you never heard me talk on that, it's a very interesting claim. For example, suppose you're out in the tundra and you're you're walking and you see in ice it's written out, it seems to be written out in letters, in English letters, it says, plane crashed 
running out of food, please help us. In like these giant blocks of ice, they're just formed in those letters. And you're like, what the heck? And you go over there and you look at, and you see, you don't find anybody. And you're looking around and you're, you know, you call in and the various governments and their agencies are checking their flight logs to see there was, was any plane lost in that area. And then though, what you realize is, oh, someone sees there's rocks behind where these giant ice, seeming ice letters are standing and there are rocks over the hill, and you can see that in the rocks, like, it's all chiseled out, those same letters. And so then somebody says, oh, see what happened was, there were these holes in the rocks, and then when it rained, the water filled it up, and then, you know, it got below freezing, and it turned to ice, and then, I don't know, there was like an earthquake or something, and it kicked them up, and then to really, you know, we just kind of have to explain what could have made these ice structures kind of jump up out of this rock and land upright 100 yards over that hill. And so really, we've kind of taken the miraculous out of this. There's no reason to suppose there was a designer. It's just the water being molded by the landscape. And then, yeah, there's a little bit of a jump we got to explain. But, you know, our problem has not been made much more manageable. So you can see how if that were the explanation to say, so really, there's no one who designed this even though it seemed like it was spelling out, our plane crashed, we're running out of food, please help, or whatever I said. I can't remember what I said. You would say, no, that's absurd. You've really just pushed the problem back one step. Why were the rocks chiseled out in that fashion such that the rainwater, quote, mindlessly filled them up and turned to ice? Okay, so likewise, Behe would say, if you're going to just say, oh, no, there's no information that was packed into the original cell, like the first, the origin of life, you know, the first cell that now is the common ancestor of all living organisms on earth. It was just all the random mutations and then the fitness that the environment conferred upon each incremental mutation that survived and propagated. And those just accumulate over time. But then that just kind of pushes back the question to say, well, why was it that the landscape, the, you know, the evolutionary fitness landscape was organized in such a way that it gave rise to creatures with these intricately designed systems internally. And that, so that's kind of the idea. All right. I guess what I'm saying is, I think that's a fair point for Hitchens to raise, even though strictly speaking, it doesn't directly bear on whether God exists or not. I don't think he's out of line for bringing that up. That like, oh, it's a bit rich now that you Christians are uh, embracing science or whatever, because back in the day, you were hotly against this and now you all kind of just capitulated and now you're just folding it into, that's kind of hard. You know, you guys are a moving target. It's kind of hard for us to argue with you because, you know, once we win a point, you just move on like nothing happened. I, I get where he's coming from with that one. Okay, we'll move on. This tactic or this style of argument, which we've had some evidence of this evening, I would re-baptize or might I dare say I would rechristen it as um, retrospective evidentialism. In other words, everything can, in due time, if you have enough faith, be made to fit. Yeah, it's, a, again, similar thing that I kind of just alluded to before. I understand where he's coming from with that term. Moving on. And you, too, are all quite free to believe that a sentient creator deliberately, consciously put himself, a being, put himself or herself or itself to the trouble of going through huge epochs of birth and death of species over eons of time, 
in which 99%, in the course of which, at least 99.9% of all species, all life forms ever to have appeared on Earth have become extinct, as we nearly did as a species ourselves. You, I invite you to look up the very alarming and beautiful and brilliant account by the National Geographic's coordinator of the genome project. By the way, you should send in your little sample from the inside of your cheek and have your African ancestry traced. It's absolutely fascinating to follow the mitochondrial DNA that we all have in common and that we have in common with other species, other primates, and other life forms, and find out where in Africa you came from. But there came a time, probably about 180,000 years ago, when due to a terrible climatic event, probably in Indonesia, an appalling global warming crisis occurred. And the, the estimate is that the number of humans in Africa went down to between 40 and 30,000. This close, this close, think about fine tuning, <laughs> this close to joining every other species that had gone extinct. Okay, so here, this is a really weird move for him to make. If anything, well, well I, the note I jotted to myself when I first listened to him to say that, I said, yeah, it's almost like a miracle occurred, right? That he's trying to prove to us that the universe is not finely tuned to support us. Because re remember what the fine tuning argument is, is to say, whoa, human life is actually very fragile. And it turns out if the charge on an electron, for example, were even just a little bit stronger or weaker, or if the weight of a proton were just a little bit more or a little bit less, or if the gravitational constant were just a little bit more or a little bit less, and you start listing all these things, and to say there's a very narrow range for each one, that if you deviate just a little bit, then life as we know it, at least, would not be possible. And when I say that, I don't mean you wouldn't be able to build houses that have three stories. I mean things like cells couldn't exist, like water molecules couldn't stay together, that kind of stuff. That's what they mean when they talk like that. Okay? And since they just keep piling on more and more of these examples of, you know, these natural things. And also, too, I've read things. So this one, I don't know how widely endorsed this particular theory is, but I've think, seen things saying, like, the Earth needed to have a moon of roughly the size and distance it was to intercept all of the killer asteroids coming. Like, if you look at the moon, it's pockmarked. And so the idea is, if the moon hadn't been there, then a lot of those things that smashed into the moon would have instead smashed into the Earth. And so that's just one more example. You know, it's not just that, oh, we've got the ionosphere and the blah, 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 that's protecting humans from radiation and, da, 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 and all these things. Like the fact that there's a moon that we have, right? Because that's not a guarantee, right? All the other planets, solar systems don't necessarily have a moon like ours. It's just another thing that was necessary, okay? And so you get through listing all these things and that's the idea being that, well, after a while, it's like, it seems like some being and deliberately twisted all the dials to just the right parameter settings. And the chance of that just happening randomly is vanishingly small. Once we think about how, you know, like the fragility of humanity and all the things that had to happen just so in order for us to be here looking around saying, what's the meaning of life? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Right. And so then for Christopher Hitchens to come along and say, oh, well, do you know? That 180,000 years ago, there was a climate disaster and humanity came to the brink of extinction, but then managed to pull through and survive and take over the earth. And he thinks that's evidence against the fine tuning when 
no, it's like, you like, so yeah, right. <laughs> Imagine you're in a plane and the pilot, they eat fish or something and the pilot passes out and the co-pilot and then you got to call in Ted Stryker and he's doing it. And then he lands a plane and everyone's like, whoa, that was miraculous. Whew, we got lucky on that one. And then someone comes forward and says, I don't think so. And they're like, why not? And he said, because there was actually a puncture in the gas tank and we should have actually run out of gasoline or whatever they use in jet fuel. But then a bird that was flying by somehow got sucked into the eggs and it actually plugged that hole, right? So it was completely lucky that we, you know, that's another reason we actually should have died. So talk about your miracles now, huh? Like, he's like, what are you talking about? You just made it even more miraculous. All right, so anyway, I think I've made my point here. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Let me also mention, for some reason, atheists, when they're sort of denigrating the idea of intelligent design or fine-tuning, whatever, they always bring up how many species have gone extinct. And I didn't really thought about it much before, but this most recent, you know, listening to this Hitchens and thinking about it, it occurred to me, like, why is that supposed to be embarrassing? Like, put it this way. Surely it's not a strike against the existence of God to say of all the organisms that have ever existed, 99.9999% have died, right? I don't know whether that's true or not, but probably true, right? Is that a strike against theism for me to point that out? All you're really doing is saying God allows things to die. And maybe that's a strike against it. Maybe it's not. I don't know why a God would make things be supernatural, particularly when people who believe in God typically believe in an afterlife too. Like, you know, that's kind of a flip side. People say, why does God make suffering exist? When it's, well, well, you die, so then it ends. So it's like, you know, okay. But you get where I'm coming from. So if it's not just a knockdown argument against fine-tuning or against intelligent design to say that people die, right? Like, oh, if the body's finally, you know, intelligently designed, how come it's not immortal? Most people don't say that, and that, or, you know, that doesn't seem very compelling. But yet, for some reason to say, oh, how come 99.999% of the species that have ever existed have gone extinct? Idiot God. Like, wh why would that, that doesn't follow at all? What's so special about those earlier species, right? Suppose it is the case that God is using the natural processes of evolution to, quote, guide the development and lead to the emergence of humanity and modern lions and, you know, animals and other creatures are cool. They're elegant. They're beautiful. They're amazing. So if God used a certain process and then along the way, you know, certain species ended and other ones flourished. Because again, along the way, each individual, it's not like the species that survived, the individual members are immortal. No, they die too, right? So it's, I get why Eleanor Rigby died and was buried along with her name. Like to humans, that seems like a thing like, oh, your bloodline ended. But it's not like some ancient amoeba cares whether its species continues or not. Who cares? So... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, when you start thinking, about, thinking through the logic, like, well, why is that supposed to be something weird at all? No, 
no good God or God who wasn't wasteful would allow a species to stop. Well, why? And in fact, you know, when you think through the logic of evolution and how things become more refined over time, how could it be otherwise is what I'm getting at. You would expect the outcome to be that most of the species ended. Right? I'm getting a little far afield from my area of expertise here, but my primitive understanding of how you know, the modeling would work, that as new species emerge, given that there's you know, a certain environmental landscape, fitness landscape, and there's scarcity of resources and such, you would think over time that, yeah, the ones that don't have the latest adaptations would fall by the wayside. And that that would be, you know, so it's, again, it's kind of like, well, why would God invent numbers, but have it be the two plus two equals four? Like, that just strikes me as odd. Or, you know, it's like, well, I mean, no pun intended, it's even, right? And it's kind of like, well, given that there's numbers, you know, two plus two is going to equal four. Like, that, how could it be otherwise? All right, moving on. You have to be able to imagine that all this mass extinction and death and randomness is the will of a being. You are absolutely free to believe that if you wish. And all of this should happen so that one very imperfect race of evolved primates should have the opportunity to become Christians or to turn up at this gym tonight. That all of that was done with us in view. It's a curious kind of solipsism. It's a curious kind of self-centeredness. I was always brought up to believe that Christians were modest and humble and comported themselves with humility. And this, there's a certain arrogance to this assumption that all of this, all of this extraordinary development was all about us. And we were the intended and designed result and everything else was in the discard. So again, he's just echoing some of the same remarks that I've already responded to there of the allegations of incompetence. It just, humans are still busy uncovering all of the mysteries and wonder of the universe, not just cosmologists peering out with the latest telescopes to see what's going on in distant galaxies and what was this dark matter, is this dark energy? Whoa, hey, there's a black hole over there. Oh, wow. Look at this quasar, guys. Check this out. But also mathematicians continuing to plumb the depths, finding new things all the time that they didn't understand just about thinking through numbers and how they work. And just like this sort of inner space. And then literally inner space, you know, the physicists at work, the quantum physicists, peering ever deeper into the innards of matter. And then all the other fields of inquiry in between those extremes. And Christopher Hitchens is going to sit back and say, he's going to look at this and say, what a waste, what a good God, what a creative, you know, if I were omnipotent, I'd do, I would have done such a better job than that. What are you talking about? Give me a break. Like, it's just, it's, it's hard for me to even get into his head. And also too, you're going to notice there's this odd thing where, okay, so one thing is, no, the Christians do not say all of this was made for us. They'll say it's for the glory of God. All right. So that's just wrong. But also, too, he, you'll see it later with some of the clips. Hitchens recoils at times against like the Christian, the view held by many Christians because they don't uniformly believe this. But the idea that, oh, we're miserable, rotten, wretches, except for the grace of God. We deserve to burn in hell forever. We're so awful. But thank God he sent Jesus to take our sins upon himself and, you know, that kind of stuff. And Hitchens obviously doesn't like that. But yet a lot of atheists, and he's one of them too, 
also seemed to have this utter disdain for humanity. Like just the way he's said, it's all that be for us. Come on. And so I don't know. I'm just pointing that out there that if you had like a Star Trek view of things and then we're going to, you know, we're going to keep advancing and then we're going to go out and explore and build ever cooler machines and stuff like that. Why would that be so implausible to say that some being could have designed the universe as our playground or just as our school or whatever for us to continue to grow in our moral and spiritual and intellectual development as we get more and more competent and are able to explore this vast learning ground. Why is that such a repugnant notion to Christopher Hitchens? I don't get it. It's hard for me to even get inside his head, except I think he's just walking around disgusted with how stupid humanity is or something. So, okay. Now, it's often said, it was said tonight, and Dr. Craig said in print, that atheists think they can prove the non-existence of God. This, in fact, very slightly but crucially misrepresents what we've always said. There's nothing new about the new atheists. It's just we're recent. There's nothing particularly new. Dr. Victor Stenger, a great uh, scientist, has written a book called The Failed Hypothesis, which he says he thinks that science can now license the claim that there definitely is no God. But he's unique in that and, very, I think, very bold and courageous. Here's what we argue. We argue quite simply that there's no plausible or convincing reason, certainly no evidential one, to believe that there is such an entity and that all observable phenomena, including the cosmological one to which I'm coming, are explicable without the hypothesis. You don't need the assumption. And this objection itself, our, our, our school, falls into at least two, perhaps three sections. There's no such thing, no such word, though there should be, as a-deism or as being an a-deist. But if there was one, I would say that's what I, I was. I don't believe that we are here as the result of a design or that by making the appropriate propitiations and adopting the appropriate postures and following the appropriate rituals, we can overcome death. I don't believe that. And for a priori reasons, don't. Okay, so a couple things here. So notice right at the end there, I included it in the clip, that it was the that throwaway line. I don't believe it for a priori reasons. That's actually a huge admission right there. He's just, you know, just saying that, you know, the, at least the Christian God, the very idea of it just, he's going to say, I don't even need to go look at evidence or empirical investigation. I'm just saying at the outset, no, that makes no sense. I don't believe in that. That's crazy. Okay. And some of you may say, fair enough. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Mr. Hitchens. But again, that is an ironic thing to be saying when we're here talking about a debate on the existence of God. The other thing, though, is, like I said, at the beginning of this analysis or this episode, this debate has turned into a debate over Christianity, right? Where is it supposed to be a debate over theism? So, you know, when he's saying, now, if a God existed, why would he care about us? Why would he care what, where would we go to church? And I could say, yeah, maybe you're right. But so what? That'd be like saying, you know, if there really were an Abraham Lincoln I see no reason to believe that he would be a vegetarian. He said, oh, okay, so maybe there was Abraham Lincoln who wasn't a vegetarian. You know, I don't, I don't know, but if we're trying to decide whether Abraham Lincoln existed or not, you're telling me I don't think if he did exist, there'd be a reason he'd be a vegetarian. That doesn't really affect one thing or the other. And so likewise here, okay, maybe God doesn't care how you have sex, but the debate's not over whether, you know, is God mad at you for doing XYZ in the bedroom, the debate is, does God exist? Okay, so this is what I mean where I'm saying he's sloppy, like it's 
Hitchens is using this opportunity to rail against Christianity when that's not what the function of this debate was supposed to be. Okay. If there was an entity that was responsible for the beginning of the cosmos, and that also happened to be busily engineering the very laborious product, production of life on our little planet, it still wouldn't prove that this entity cared about us, answered prayers, cared what church we went to, or whether we went to one at all, cared who we had sex with, or in what position, or by what means, cared what we ate, or on what day, cared whether we lived or died. There's no reason at all why this entity isn't completely indifferent to us. You cannot get from deism to theism, except by a series of extraordinarily generous to yourself assumptions. Okay, so again, just to continue with that train of thought, strictly speaking, this has no relevance whatsoever to the debate of does God exist? But let me just mention, since he's bringing it up, why is that so implausible? Again, it betrays, I think, the um, misanthropy, that's the word I want, right, of Christopher Hitchens here. He just finds humanity repugnant in a certain sense. And so that's kind of seeping into this. Like, well, why would a God care about it? If we discovered bacteria on Venus, people would flip out. We'd all of a sudden be clamoring for all sorts of, you know, billions and extra funding for NASA and whatever to go study it further. People would be jumping for joy if we found the existence of live bacteria on Venus. All right, what's the big thing lots of people are really deep down pining for? That there's aliens out there and we're going to communicate with them, right? So if there's a God and he created a universe that was originally lifeless, and then either because he just directly created them, you know, in full form or planted the seeds metaphorically that then billions of years later gave rise to sentient beings. Either way, why would we suppose he wouldn't care about that? Well, what's he going to do? Just go look at constellations in their patterns and just like, oh, that's a cool hydrogen reaction going on there. Let me just sit there and just look at that and not care about the world wars that were occurring on this blue planet that was circling a yellow star. It's mind-boggling to think <laughs> that Hitchens would think God wouldn't care about us. What else is he going to care about? Now, if there's tons of other aliens and stuff, okay, maybe. But anyway, okay, made my point. Let's move on. The deist has all his work still ahead of him to show that it leads to revelation, uh, to redemption, uh, to salvation, or to suspensions of the natural order, in which hitherto you've been putting all your faith, all your evidence is on scientific and natural evidence, or why not, for a change of pace and a change of taste, say yes, but sometimes this same natural order, which is so miraculous in observation, no question about it, is so impressive in its, in its favoring the conditions for life in some ways, but that it's randomly suspended when miracles are acquired. So with the caprice and contempt, these laws turn out not to be so important after all, as long as the truth of religion can be proved by their being rendered inoperative. This is having it both ways in the most promiscuous and exorbitant manner in my submission. Okay, so here, yeah, I'll give a point to Hitchens. Strictly speaking, I don't remember that William Lane Craig even took a strong stance on miracles, at least in his opening remarks. I think in the Q&A or the cross-secs in the closing statements, maybe they do get into it a little bit. But fair enough, in general, I think Hitchens is right that the standard Christian trying to argue this stuff probably would get tied up in knots about, ah, yes, like the very laws of physics are so elegant and 
orderly and look at all this order and pattern in the universe we exhibit. And clearly that's the result of an intelligent designer. But then invoking, ah, we see the miraculous hand of God at work here because God is not constrained by the laws of nature, right? So again, it, I would just say just that's a little just a bit sloppy packaging and that really the correct expression is to say these miracles occur that are consistent with parsimonious rules of nature, laws of nature, laws of physics. And that just underscores that there was an intelligent designer, right? That one would not have supposed such simple rules would have given rise to such amazing, complex results. And yet, here we are. Retrospective evidentialism strikes me in something of the same sort of light. It's a concession made to the need for fact. Maybe we better have some evidence to go along with our faith. But look at what Dr. Craig says in his book. He says, I'll quote directly, he says, should a conflict arise between the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fundamental truth of the Christian faith and beliefs based on argument and evidence, then it is the former which must take precedence over the latter. He adds not vice versa, but a good editor, I think, would have told you, you don't have to put the vice versa in. It's clear enough as it is. I'll say it again. Should a conflict arise between the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fundamental truth of the Christian faith and beliefs based on argument and evidence, then it's the former which must take precedence over the latter. That's not evidentialism. That's just faith. It's a priori belief. It's rephrased in another edition. It says, therefore, the role of rational argumentation in knowing, knowing Christianity to be true is the role of a servant. A person knows Christianity is true because the Holy Spirit tells him it is true. And while argument and evidence can be used to support this conclusion, they cannot legitimately overrule it. Okay, so here, I don't want to dwell too long on this, but I understand why Hitchens would think that. But strictly speaking, this is not a valid argument he's, or objection that he's raising here. All right, that Christians believe that God has directly revealed himself to some people throughout history. I've told you guys my story in a few different occasions that back when I was an atheist and then I had my conversion experience, the various things that made me believe, wow, there is a God. At that point, I wasn't a Christian. I just realized there was a God. And I said out loud, I'm so sorry, referring to like, my Christian friends in college who I'd tried to convince to be atheists. And I heard a voice in my head say, I forgive you. Now, don't get me wrong. If I were still an atheist and someone else told me that story, I would say, well, you were racked by guilt. And so your subconscious generated that auditory hallucination. And I mean, to be clear, I didn't think that my eardrums were, that something was going on in my, the bones in my ears and that sent a signal. Like when I say I heard a voice in my head, it was internal, but, Nonetheless, I get how an atheist would explain that away. Believe me, I get it, guys. I'm just telling you what I observed, experienced. And so to me, it's like I quote, no, God exists. I mean, I've used this analogy before. Suppose some Martians show, well, you don't know they're Martians, but little green organ, you know, humanoid things walking around, they grab you, they take you into a flying saucer and it goes up and you can see the earth. And then you go over to Mars, to a far side, and there's a base there, and you land, and they probe you and stuff, and they come and drop you back off. Now, you know, at that point, Martians exist. You know it. And then other people don't believe you, and you can give your firsthand testimony, and they're going to say you're nuts. So you could turn to rational argumentation. You could try to get telescopes, and you could do this, and you could do that. You say, oh, look at, you can see these tracks in the dirt, and that's the, from their vehicles, because I know their base is right around here. 
And people will not believe your base story, but they could say, yeah, we can definitely see those tracks. That's odd. How can we explain that? Right? So it's not that reason and science and empiricism would be against you or something. You could use them as tools. But deep down, we say, how do you know there's Martians? You Because they abducted me and probed me. That's how. I couldn't sit for a week. Right? And if somebody tried to use reason or evidence or something to prove to you that Martians didn't exist, you would just know that there was a flaw in their argument. You know, if they tried to use some back-of-the-envelope calculations, they no, 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 a chance of two intelligent species arising in the same solar system are astronomically against. And so I don't believe your narrative, sir. And you would just know the guy was wrong. You would know you must have made a mistake in your calculations because I'm telling you they exist. Okay, so that's what's going on here. It's not that William Lane Craig in that excerpt was admitting that, oh, yeah, you got to throw science and reason out the window and just have faith, man. That's not at all what he was arguing there. Okay. But you see where this lands you, ladies and gentlemen, with the Christian apologetic. You're told you're a miserable sinner who is without excuse. You've disappointed your God in whom who made you and you've been so ungrateful as to rebel. You're contemptible. You're worm-like. But you can take heart. The whole universe was designed with just you in mind. These two claims are not just mutually exclusive, but I think they're intended to compensate each other's cruelty and ultimately absurdity. Okay, so I've alluded to this attitude before, or already, I should say, so I don't need to dwell on too much here. I will admit there is something I think is not right with how a lot of Christians deal with this stuff. There is this, you know, and it, you know it's in Calvinism, what is it, the tulip thing? What is the T stands for total depravity, I think. So there is that element that some Christians really like to lay it on thick that you are miserable worm, you're nothing, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, you deserve to just be tortured for eternity, burning in hellfire. And then God came and bestowed unmerited grace upon you forgave you for your wicked crimes and brought you into the family as an adopted son or daughter. And yeah, there is something unsettling to me about that. I don't think though the, the resolution is to say, oh no, we're all basically pretty good and just try to live a good life and Jesus will take you in and give you a hug. And you know, if you're basically pretty good, we're all pretty good, you know, except for like serial killers and stuff. No, that's wrong. What I just said there, that like that's kind of the conventional view that most people have. And that, I think, is just wrong. I think it may be a better explanation is more like God is infinitely holy. He calls us to follow his example. When he came to earth as a man in the form of Jesus, he did live a perfect life. So he showed us this is how you would do it. There's no way we can do that. It's impossible for us to do it on our own power. But we're made in the image of God he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He inspires us. He makes us crave. We strive. We yearn to be more like Jesus. And the more we trust in him, the more we would just naturally fall into that. So it's not that we got to like just be slapping our hands. And, no, no raping, no stealing, no murdering, bad, no, naughty boy. It's if you loved God with all your heart and soul and mind and loved your neighbor as yourself, then you wouldn't have any desire to do those other things, right? You would just be overflowing with kindness and empathy and just want to go help them because that'd be part of your nature at that point, but you would be reborn, okay? So I think it's something like that, that when God looks at us, 
he sees the tremendous potential we have. But without him, we're lost. And also, I think some of the subtlety here, and again, this is a lot of this is just me, not I'm not paraphrasing theologians or something. I think what happens is we're very good at self-serving narratives and thing and convincing ourselves that we're better than we really are. So we, you know, we want to be able to go to sleep at night. Now, maybe there's some true, I always get it mixed up, whether it's psychopath or sociopath, like Bill and Hillary Clinton, when they go to bed at night, after they put down the vials of blood that they've extracted from unwilling donors, do they like think, nah, what we're trying to do is just build this new world order, working with our buddy Klaus and yeah, some people suffer. We had to lie a little bit, but it's because, you know, everyone's kind of stupid and we have to lie for their own. Are they thinking like that or are they? <laughs> I don't know. But I think most people, even ones that we would say like, oh yeah, those people are evil. I think they probably have just done a really good job of building rationalizations over the years. So in practice, what they're doing is very wicked, but maybe they've genuinely convinced themselves not to look at it like that. So like, but what does that mean when we evaluate them? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Okay, one more, folks. He's finally going to get to the fine-tuning argument at the tail end. He's only given himself three minutes. Let's see what he does with it. Well, one is the idea of this fine-tuning, about which I've, I've only left myself three and a half minutes. I'll have to refer some of this to later in the discussion. This is essentially another form of patent-seeking on the basis of extremely limited evidence. Most physicists are very uncertain, as they have every right to be. In fact, I would say, for physicists, as they have the duty to be at the moment, extremely uncertain about the spatiotemporal dimensions of the original episode, the Big Bang, as it's sometimes called. We're in the very, very early stages of this inquiry. We hardly know what we don't know about the origins of the universe. We're viewing it from an unimaginable distance, not just an unimaginable distance in space. We're perched on a tiny rock in an extremely small suburb of a fairly minor galaxy, trying to look to discern our origins, but also at an un unbelievable distance in time. And we, we claim the right to say, ah, we can see the finger of God in this process. It's an extraordinarily arrogant assumption. It either deserves a Nobel Prize in physics, which it hasn't yet got, I notice. I don't know any physicist who believes these assumptions are necessary, or it deserves a charge of hubris. Let me make three tiny, quick objections to it as it stands, and I'm no more a physicist than most of you are. I'll make these lay objections. One, was there pre-existing material for this extra spatio-temporal being to work with? Or did he just will it into existence, the ex nihilo? Who designed the designer? Don't you run the risk with the, the presumption of a god and a designer and an originator of asking, well, where does that come from? Where does that come from? And locking yourself into an infinite regress. Why are there so many shooting stars, collapsed suns, failed galaxies? We can see. We can see with the aid of a telescope. Sometimes we can see with the, with the naked eye. The, the utter failure, the total destruction of gigantic, unimaginable sweeps of outer space. Is this fine-tuning, or is it uh, extremely random, capricious, cruel, mysterious, and incompetent? And... Have you thought of the nothingness that's coming? We know we have something now, and we speculate about what it might have come from, and there's a real question about ex nihilo, but nihilo is coming to us. 
in the night sky, you can already see the Andromeda galaxy. It's heading straight for ours on a collision course. Is that part of a design? Was it fine-tuned to do that? We know that from the red light shift of the Hubble telescope, or rather Edwin Hubble's original discovery, the universe is expanding away from itself at a tremendous rate. It was thought that rate would go down for Newtonian reasons. No, uh, it's recently been proved by Professor Lawrence Krauss. The rate of expansion is increasing. Everything is exploding away even faster. Nothingness is certainly coming. Who designed that? Uh, and that's all if, if before um, these things happen, we don't have the destruction of our own little solar system, in which already there's only one planet where anything like life can possibly be supported. All the other planets are too hot or too cold to support any life at all, and the sun is due to swell up, burn us to a crisp, boil our oceans and die, as we've seen all the other suns do in the night sky. This is not fine-tuning, ladies and gentlemen, and if it's the work of a designer then there's an indictment to which that designer may have to be subjected. Okay, so here, this is just terrible, right? Like this, I don't know if it's because he just didn't know that William Lane Craig was going to bring that up or if this is really his well thought out in advance response to the fine tuning argument, then this is just thrown in the towel as far as I'm concerned, right? So he's not at all addressing the issue of why does the fine tuning exist? He's trying to make it sound like there's this open debate among physicists. Well, we don't really know. It doesn't matter what the issue is with the Big Bang. The issue is plenty of scientists, and again, not like some Christian chemistry professor at some third-rate school somewhere, but like leading atheist physicists, people like Stephen Hawking. I don't know if Stephen Hawking calls himself an atheist. I think he is, but I don't want to say that with such confidence, but he's certainly not walking around telling everybody to accept Jesus as their savior. I think Feynman, too, subscribed to this idea that the parameters of the universe seem to be dialed in to a very small range of values where if any one of them had just been a little bit more one way or the other, life would not be possible. And as far as I can tell there, Hitchens doesn't address that at all. Instead, he just says, well, we don't know much about the Big Bang. Okay. And then his final point there that I quoted or did the excerpt with Again, it's just goofy. He's saying, oh, we're all going to die out, and so therefore, why would a guy go, well, what if there's an afterlife? Like, how is that? And technically, you don't know that that's how it's going to play out, right? According to the book of Revelation, that it's going to be the rapture beforehand, right? It's not that the universe is just going to keep expanding, and our sun's going to slowly die out. Or, you know, maybe expand into a red giant or something and engulf us. Or that maybe humanity will have left the solar system by then, but still the galaxies just keep accelerating away from each other because of dark energy and blah, blah, blah. And eventually entropy will just keep increasing. And so humanity will necessarily die off at some point. That's not what Christians think is going to happen. So, <laughs> and... Certainly Christopher Hitchens can't prove to us that's going to happen. He just got through telling us, oh, we wouldn't know anything. Okay, but does he knows that's, you know, he can prove to us using the laws of thermodynamics that there's not going to be a new Jerusalem. <laughs> so, again, it's just depressing or disappointing, I should say, because he's not really even grappling with his opponent. So, in summary, I think William Lane Craig had a few good arguments. One of them was a really good one, namely the fine-tuning one that he just kind of fumbled the delivery of. 
Whereas Hitchens, he made a couple of good points about why Christians in practice are either hypocrites or move the goalposts historically. But as far as responding to William Lane Craig's arguments or giving independent objections to the idea of the God, I don't think Hitchens did a good job at all. He did do a good job clarifying the terrain a little bit about what do we mean by atheist? Who's the burden of proof on that sort of thing? I don't know if I mentioned that specifically. I think I haven't went ahead with the excerpts, but I didn't respond to it. But yes, Hitchens was right, I think, to clarify and say he shouldn't have to prove that there isn't a God. All he has to do is say, I see no compelling reason to believe in such an extraordinary claim. And I'm fine with that stance. But still, I think William Lane Craig gave some good arguments, some better than others, as to why we should believe in such an extraordinary claim. And Hitchens, in my book, did not really rebut any of them. He didn't really even try to rebut many of them. So in conclusion, I think William Lane Craig won the debate. And by the way, it would be possible for me to say someone like an atheist won this kind of a debate, even though I think he was wrong or she was wrong. All right, so I'm distinguishing between how they debated their performance versus the underlying truth of the resolution. So I'm saying not only did I not get convinced by Christopher Hitchens in this, but I think William Link Craig beat him in the debate as well. In other words, somebody could have shown up as the pro for it, just started reading the gospel and said, see, God exists, the Bible said so, and then sit down. And then if Hitchens said what he said, I would have scored it and said, okay, yeah, that first guy... I personally believe what he said, but not because of anything he said during the debate as the clock ran. And so I'm giving him zero points. And so Hitchens wins, even though I still believe in God, right? Like I, I could have done it like that, but William Lay Craig did a lot better job <laughs> than my hypothetical guy who just starts quoting from the Bible. Okay, so we'll wrap this one up. Stay tuned for future episodes where I will parse other debates and not necessarily about theological stuff. We'll see. I mean, I do have at least one more that's a debate on the existence of God that I think got into better stuff than this one did. Like they grappled with deeper, weightier issues. There was more clash. So that one will be fun. And then, yeah, if you have other suggestions, and again, it doesn't have to just be theological in nature, let me know if this is a good series for me to occasionally do where I remember part of what I'm doing here is in case you're someone who wanted to hear debates like this, but you just never got around to doing it. That's what I'm trying to do here is give you the Cliff's notes. Okay, thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.